0: Welcome to Power Play. I'm Mike LeCouture. Today, a landmark settlement rejected.
1: I think disappointing to many First Nations people that a First Nations-led, Indigenous-designed approach hasn't uh, been accepted as complete.
0: A child welfare deal that Ottawa once called historic has been dismissed by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. We'll hear from the Assembly of First Nations coming up. Then, ISIS detention... A Canadian woman held for three years for her connection to ISIS has left a detention camp in Syria. We'll bring you the very latest on this developing story. Plus, Ford's fight against a national inquiry. It's a federal commission of inquiry into the federal
2: government's use of the uh, the Emergencies Act. He was part of all of this process and he needs to answer...
0: The Ontario Premier dodged the media today, but his party insists he shouldn't testify at the inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. At the Commission, we also heard that Ottawa police feared protesters were inspired by the January 6th insurrection. We've got all angles on this story covered today. This is Power Play. Let's get to the players. A landmark settlement falls apart. The Canadian Human Rights Tribunal rejected the federal government's $40 billion First Nations Child Welfare Agreement. That agreement would see $20 billion set aside for individual compensation for children forcibly removed from their homes. The other $20 billion is set aside to overhaul the First Nations Child and Family Services to be spent over five years. So why reject a deal the federal government considered to be historic? Well, the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal said the deal doesn't satisfy its criteria because it leaves some children out and does not guarantee the $40,000 in compensation for each child and caregiver that the tribunal had called for. Now, both the federal government and Assembly of First Nations have been quick to express their disappointment. But the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society Executive Director Cindy Blackstock previously asked for the deal to go back to the table, flagging concerns that leave some children out entirely. So can this deal be pieced back together, and is the government willing to play ball with the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal? Let's find out. Joining me now is AFN Regional Chief Cindy Woodhouse. Welcome to the show, Regional Chief Woodhouse. I just wanted to start with your initial reaction to this decision today.
3: Thanks for thanks for having me. Uh, you know, it was very disappointing. You know, many people were very disappointed. You know, we we worked together to make this a First Nations-led deal. And I just think, you know, it's so disappointing that we got to this point and we worked so hard and we were unified and just for it to fall apart.
0: Unified, but the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal says this deal does not meet its criteria because it leaves some children out. Is there a path forward with the tribunal at this stage? And what is a path forward for you?
3: Well, you know, at the Assembly of First Nations, we expanded who would be included. You know, we expanded on even uh, what the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal um, ordered. We expanded that order. We included way more people. There's going to be 300,000 children and families that are affected by this and that are so disappointed today in First Nations communities. This is a loss for First Nations. This is a loss for Canada because You know, we've just come through residential schools. We've come through day schools. And, you know, many say that the child welfare system is another, is an extension of the residential school system. And First Nations for once are at the, we're at the driving seat of making positive change and bringing our children home to our communities only to be, uh, you know, to be squashed today. It, It feels like a major setback, a major, major setback.
0: A setback, but the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society has asked for this deal to be sent back to the drawing board, saying it shortchanged compensation for some and left others out entirely. So do you agree with that, even though you're disappointed about this? Do you think that there's hope now in all of this, regional chief, that a better deal could actually be put back together?
3: I think this is a this was a good deal. I, I commend the prime minister. I commend this government for working really hard to make sure that, you know, when we when the when we were negotiating, they they were in good faith. We were in good faith. Nothing's perfect in this world. But, you know, and I don't know what agreement is perfect. If somebody has a perfect agreement, please, please tell us. But, you know, we worked in good faith to put this together, to make sure that every kid, uh, in the First Nations Child and Family Services program, and that, that was affected by the narrow implementation of Jordan's principle, that those children were compensated first and foremost, that the priority was given to those children and their families. And so they're the, you know, they're the ones that are, that are going to have to wait a lot longer now. This is very disheartening.
0: But still, the tribunal says that some kids were left out. So I'm, I'm just trying to figure out here. You don't think there is a better deal out there to be had that the tribunal and all involved in this will say will include everyone?
3: There's, you know, like like I would said, we, we'd focused on First Nations kids that, that were affected by child and family services that were removed from their homes, removed from their communities. We focused on First Nations children and all of those people were going to be compensated, I, you know, as I just think that, uh, you know, they're, they're the ones that are losing out today.
0: So what impact is there now on that youth and, and the people who are waiting for compensation?
3: Well, we're going to keep, you know, we're going to look at what we have in our toolbox to, to see where we go from here. We still need to analyze further. We still need to you know, um, what's our next steps? I know that uh, time is ticking to December 31st. This is a major, major setback. I just, you know, I, I we're going to keep working really hard. We, we have our lawyers ready to go. We have, you know, as uh, an entire team, uh, you know, here trying to work to make this, uh, to, to see what we can salvage from all of this, to make changes in the child welfare system. And these kids deserve compensation and it's too bad that you know people were irresponsible and took that away from them very disheartening
0: disheartening and i've only got about 20 seconds but now as you said the focus turns to trying to make a better deal is that where you are now looking
3: you know we're we're going to try and salvage what we can from this was a good deal the this was a historic historic deal and this is also a historic setback and so it's very it's very tough to to go through this today and to see our First Nations just let down once again, First Nations people waiting, and I thank Canadians though who have who have you know been such big supporters of us in trying to get this through. This is just a, a disheartening day.
0: AFN Regional Chief Cindy Woodhouse, thank you so much for making the time with us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you a big development today involving a Canadian woman being held in Syria. CTV News has confirmed that Kimberly Pullman left the Al-Raj camp with another Canadian woman and her daughter, Pullman, has been held in the ISIS detention camp for at least three years for alleged association with the terror group. CTV's BC Bureau Chief Melanie Nagy joins us now with the latest. Mel, what do we know about her departure from the camp?
1: Well, as you mentioned, we have learned that she has left the camp and how it's been described to me is that her tent was found empty, no personal belongings present, and that there was no evidence of her in the camp. We've also learned that she's traveling with another Canadian woman and with that woman's child. But as for the route she took or her final destination, that's still unclear. We don't have specific details around that, but there are reports that she arrived in northern Iraq today with the expectation that she will be repatriated to Canada. So still a lot of details we need on this uh, story so far. But we do know she has left the camp. Now I did speak to Lawrence Greenspan. He is the lawyer that has Taken the federal government to court, representing 23 Canadians—men, women, and children—at these detention camps in Syria, trying to force the federal government to bring them back. He says he too has had several unconfirmed reports that she is now away from the camp. He has reached out to Global Affairs to get official confirmation on this. So have we. Uh, we, you know, just moments ago, I was checking for uh, an update from Global Affairs. They say they are working on a request. They have not come forward with a first official confirmation on this but various people have told us throughout the day that she is no longer in this camp this detention camp in syria
0: Uh, mel you're saying that she could be repatriated to canada what could she face here in this country
1: that's a really good question and something as well we've been trying to ask different agencies um, within the federal government as well uh, today, as I mentioned, we haven't heard from Global Affairs, but uh, the Public Safety Minister was asked about this and uh, he did say he doesn't uh, comment or will not comment on individual cases such as this. But then I want to add that he did say when pressed even further, he did say that supporting a terrorist group whether here or abroad is a serious criminal offence and those who engage in those kind of activities will face the full force of the law. So he did say that today. What that might mean for Kimberly Pullman remains to be seen. Again, there are a lot of details when it comes to her case, alleged connections to ISIS. Um, So we'll have to watch for that. But I think one thing that's important to note is that this is a woman uh, from accounts from uh, the United Nations, from Human Rights Watch Canada, people that have been in direct contact with her, that her physical health was deteriorating quite a bit in that camp, as well as her mental health. So presumably one of the first priorities if and when she arrives here in Canada is to get her that proper medical attention that so many of the people that know her say she desperately needs. So you can expect that that would be a top priority as I mentioned when or if she arrives. We're still waiting for uh, more details on that because this is still a developing story today.
0: And we'll keep watching for that. Thank you so much. CTV News' is Melanie Nagy in Vancouver tonight. Coming up, more Ottawa police officers testified before the Emergencies Act inquiry today, but the elephant in the room continues to be Ontario Premier Doug Ford in his fight against the summons, calling him to testify. We're joined by Ontario opposition MPPs right after this. Stay with Power Play.
4: premier and the minister stop hiding come to ottawa and testify before the commission
1: government house leader uh,
0: again thank you mr speaker uh, again i suppose it's a difference uh, of opinion uh, on this mr speaker we believe that this is a policing matter and not a political matter mr speaker That was the debate at Queen's Park today as we turn to the inquiry into the use of the Emergencies Act. And of course, the question is, will he or won't he testify? The question about Premier Doug Ford at the inquiry. And also, as you just saw, Queen's Park, the Ontario government continues to push back against the summons for Ford and former Solicitor General Sylvia Jones to testify. Meantime, testimony at the inquiry continues to focus on the dysfunction within the Ottawa Police Force. So, can Ford and Jones avoid testifying at the inquiry? And did dysfunction in the force hamper the police response? Let's find out. Joining me now is CTV National News Correspondent Judy Trin. Judy, thank you for being here. I wanted to ask you about all of the responses that we're seeing today from police two competing strategies behind the scenes. Tell me a little bit about those.
5: Absolutely. So today we heard from uh, Inspector Russell Lucas of the Ottawa Police Service, and he is the incident commander. So he is the senior officer on the ground. He's supposed to be sort of like uh, the general, telling you what what officers go where and so on. What is interesting about it is that he is firmly in the camp of let's negotiate with the protesters, right? He uh, believed in the work of the police liaison teams. These are the officers that you would often see uh, assisting the protesters helping them uh, get through certain uh, blockades, perhaps even helping them with uh, their fuel. Uh, You know, we've seen officers help with jerry cans. These are those police liaison officers doing the public relations work. On the other camp would be uh, Chief Peter Slowly. Mm-hmm. He wanted a hard line approach. He wanted enforcement. Uh, he was the one that supported uh, a raid at the Coventry camp. Uh, the Coventry camp is the main supply camp. And it just uh, when police raided that on February 6th, what ended up happening was that they were able to seize fuel and propane, so disrupt the supply chain. However... What it ended up doing was break the trust between protesters and this police liaison team. So the protesters stopped talking to them and negotiations broke down.
0: So how did this dysfunction and, in a sense, disagreement affect the response to the convoy?
5: Well, the whole thing was dysfunctional, wasn't it? Let me, let me... (laughs) Understatement of the year? Understatement. But let me uh, play this clip for you. Take a listen. There
4: was a lot of references that were popping up on social media saying this was going to be their January 6th. And this was the, I believe this was the same day that we started reaching out to uh, have other public order units from other police services to be in town to support us.
5: So Inspector Lucas is talking about the very first weekend, what they were expecting when they referred to January 6th was sort of like the storming of the Capitol, so a storming of the Parliament Hill. So they had all these public order officers. These are the riot police ready to go in. They had 500 additional bodies from Toronto, from Durham, from OPP. But they didn't do anything because there was no storming. Instead, these protesters... Just decided to occupy Okinawa and entrench themselves and the police had no plan for that despite the fact that OPP intelligence reports actually said you know these protesters thousands of them as many as 10 to 15,000 are coming from all across Canada they have no exit plan or they will not leave until vaccine mandates are lifted right. that's weeks if not months so Uh, Ottawa police did not uh, pay attention to those intelligence reports and the opp uh, lawyer in cross-examination was very clear to point that out to deputy chief uh, uh, steve bell yesterday saying you know what none of our opp intelligence even made it into your planning documents
0: incredible judy unfortunately we're gonna have to leave it right there we're all out of time appreciate that Let's dig into the political fight now and the possible ramifications of Premier Ford and Minister Jones fighting the summons to testify. Joining me now are two Ottawa area MPPs to weigh in. Ontario NDP MPP. Shauna Pasma, and Ontario Liberal MPP Stephen Blake. thank you so much for being here. We did ask Premier Ford's government to have someone participate in our panel, but they said they could not accommodate our interview request. So, Ms. Pasma, we'll start with you. What do you think is behind Premier Ford and Minister Jones fighting the summons to testify before the Emergencies inquiry?
6: Well, we've seen already that the government's version of the story is just not adding up. Uh, Doug Ford claimed that he was working collaboratively with the Mayor of Ottawa and the Prime Minister, and yet we know from the testimony that's come out of the Commission already so far, the Prime Minister and the Mayor were saying that Premier Ford was nowhere to be seen. We know where there were discrepancies in how many police officers were being provided by the province. Uh, We know that Doug Ford... We claimed that there were going to be huge fines imposed on truckers who didn't leave. And then in the end, the trucks and the licenses were given back with no penalties at all imposed. Uh, I think that the government risks having more of these discrepancies exposed if they actually come and testify and have to answer questions about what their role in the convoy and in the emergency actually was.
0: Mr. Blay, I want to bring you in here. Last week, Premier Ford told reporters that he wasn't asked to appear at the inquiry. And today, Premier Ford and Minister Jones weren't at question period at Queen's Park. So what are Ontarians supposed to believe about whether or not they actually want to participate in this?
4: Well, it's clear that they don't want to participate in this. They've been very clear about that. Not only did they not volunteer uh, to do uh, an interview, they're now challenging the summons uh, in court. It's odd that uh, the Premier of a province and the Solicitor General would choose not to tell their side of the story, not to be accountable Uh, to uh, electors on what the government knew and when, what what information they transmitted to Ottawa, what decisions they made internally uh, as a government in terms of what resources they would or or, or would not provide. At the end of the day, leaders lead. Uh, They don't sit back, uh, they don't stay quiet, uh, they lead. And when they take a decision, uh, they're to take accountability for that decision. And unfortunately, the Premier and the Solicitor General are, are choosing to avoid that accountability.
0: Ms. Pasman, in fairness to the Ford government, this inquiry is all about the federal government's invocation of the Emergencies Act, not the provincial government's. So is it fair to expect that Premier Ford and, um, and, and Minister Jones won't want to testify when the accountability really lies with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau?
6: Well, what we don't know is what uh, role the province's failure to act played in making this an emergency that required such a drastic step to clear. Uh, the Premier delayed calling a provincial state of emergency. He refused to use the tools that he had in his hand, including the suspension and the revocation of licenses, imposing these fines on the convoy. He didn't even visit Ottawa, let alone attend any of the tripartite meetings to actually hear what the requests were from the mayor and the community. I think it's really important for us to understand what role did the province actually play, what role could the province have played so that we understand what actually happened Uh, in case, you know, we we really need to understand what happened so we can avoid a future situation like this down the road.
0: Mr. Blay, part of the pushback by the Ford government saying instead of Premier and the Minister Jones testifying, the Commission is set to hear from two provincial officials. In your mind, is that adequate representation for the province at this inquiry?
4: No, not at all. As I said before, leaders lead. That's a far cry from the old days of of the buck stops with me as as the elected official or as the premier. Uh, The premier uh, as the uh, chief elected official in Ontario, uh, the solicitor general as the the, the minister responsible for the safety and security uh, of our our province uh, has a responsibility to, as Chandra rightly pointed out, What decisions were taken or not taken that led up to the situation that required the federal government to invoke the Emergencies Act? What information was shared or not shared? What resources were provided or not provided? What we know as outside observers is that the premier took uh, days and days and days to even mention the fact that there was any problem in Ottawa. And then he took weeks to actually take any action. He chose not to take any action, uh, until really the economic interests of the province were, were were put to the test with the with the blockades in, in southern Ontario, he didn't care that Ottawa residents were being kept up all hours with blaring horns. He didn't care that uh, people were being harassed walking down uh, the street for for wearing a mask. He didn't care that small businesses in Ottawa couldn't operate because. Uh, downtown was all but impassable. He only chose to take action when the broader economic interests uh, for the auto industry were were put at risk with the blockade of the bridge in southern Ontario. We need to know what information, what questions were being discussed uh, by the Premier with his officials, with the Solicitor General, with other members of Cabinet uh, to uh, go into their decisions not to participate in what was happening in Ottawa. That's what led to the Emergencies Act being needed in order to clear the streets. And we need to hear from the Premier and from the Solicitor General what conversations we're having, what they knew and when they knew it, uh, and how uh, how that information was was transmitted or not to the, to the City of Ottawa. At the end of the day, leaders lead, and the Premier d- needs to take responsibility uh, for his actions or inaction uh, as it relates to the convoy in Ottawa.
0: Last reminder, we did invite a member of the government or a representative from the government to appear on this panel. They declined unfortunately. We're going to have to leave it here, Chandra Pasma and Stephen Blake. Thank you both for taking the time to join us tonight. Coming up, Ottawa has a new mayor with the national capital at the heart of the ongoing Emergencies Act inquiry. What's at stake for the new mayor? Ottawa mayor-elect Mark Sutcliffe joins us next. We're taking a time out on power play, but we will be right back. I begin by saying thank you to all the people, all of the people, because there were lots of them who put their names on ballots in this election. It's a courageous thing to do, and I want to, of course, congratulate those who've won seats on City Council. I I look forward to working with all of them, and I'm hugely hopeful about the future of this city. But there are challenges in front of us, and we have to meet those challenges together well, Ontarians had their say at the ballot box yesterday in province, province-wide municipal elections. Residents of the Greater Toronto Area decided to stay the course. Incumbent John Tory will remain mayor in Toronto. Mississauga Mayor Bonnie Crombie won, as did Brampton Mayor Patrick Brown. Brown's win comes after a summer where he was ousted from the federal conservative leadership race. The two former provincial party leaders did manage to extend their political careers At the municipal level, former Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath was elected mayor in Hamilton, while ex-leader of the Ontario Liberals, Stephen Del Duca, is now the mayor of Vaughan. And in Ottawa, former broadcaster and entrepreneur Mark Sutcliffe will take over the reins in the nation's capital. It's a city that's trying to still heal from the scars of last winter's Freedom Convoy protests, which occupied the downtown core for weeks. And as the Emergencies Act continues to shine a light on the fractured intergovernmental relations... How will this new mayor overcome the divisions? Well, let's ask him. He's sitting right next to me. Joining me now, Mayor-elect Mark Sutcliffe, thank you very much and congratulations once again. Thank you very much. can't imagine you got tons of sleep, but let's get right (laughs) to the questions. I did not. Yeah, go ahead. The focus of the Emergencies Act really is on the police response, but also we're hearing a lot of the problems behind the scenes with the police. In the middle of this campaign, or I should say three days before the vote, one of your campaign co-chairs was part of the group that helped name a new police chief. Given everything that has happened now with the Ottawa Police Service, what can you do now to restore faith that Ottawans may no longer have in the police force?
2: I think it's really important that we restore trust in the Ottawa Police Service. Uh, There's a new police chief. There's going to be a new mayor and a new city council. uh, And we need to make sure, number one, that uh, we never let this kind of event happen again in Ottawa's downtown core. So we have to make sure the plans are in place to do that. We've got to work with other levels of government to address the the kinds of events that are are happening or could happen in the nation's capital. And in particular, I've been talking about how I want to work with the federal government on a new arrangement for downtown Ottawa because the residents of Ottawa right now are paying for not only a municipal police service like any other city, but they're also paying for some of the costs of policing a nation's capital. And we we need to work that out with the federal government to make sure that, number one, we're providing security in the parliamentary precinct, we're preventing these kinds of events from happening again, and also that we're fair
0: to the taxpayers of Ottawa. In that, I mean, you've you've promised this long by, line by line review within a hundred days, or even before your first budget. Is that even possible? Especially when you consider that the quarterly financial numbers are forecasting a thirteen million dollar deficit in twenty twenty two.
2: So we're going to go line by line through the Ottawa City Budget. That's something that hasn't been done in 20 years. So we're looking for some savings and efficiencies without affecting any programs or services that are delivered to the people of Ottawa. Uh, without having done that for 20 years, we know technology has changed. Uh, lots of
0: other things have happened.
2: That there's room for some savings without.
0: You're, you're confident you can find those? Because absolutely. I, I think there's a lot of a lot of Ottawans sitting there going, "How are you going to do that without either raising property taxes or like affecting services
2: yeah we're going to be able to do that because for example the city of ottawa spends hundreds of millions of dollars on consulting fees every year we can find a small amount of savings in that area we're talking about finding 0.7 percent of savings in the total city budget it's not an enormous amount but i think it shows respect to taxpayers and it means we can take that money and reinvest it
0: in in our priorities Lastly, I just want to ask you, because I moved here from Montreal 11 years ago, a lot of people sort of give Ottawa a bit of a bad rap for not really seeming like the nation's capital, not really having that sort of G7 capital feel. What are you going to do to make sure that you bring Ottawa into the 21st century and to make this a true G7 capital?
2: So I think there's a couple of things that I would say about that. First of all, let's let's talk about G7 capitals for a second. Ottawa is the smallest and the newest of all the G7 capitals. Most of those cities are 1,000 years old and have 10 times the population of Ottawa, and and five of them are also the largest city in the country. They're the economic centre as well as the political capital. So I don't think it's fair to compare Ottawa to Paris or London right. or Tokyo and expect it to be that the same kind of city. Ottawa is a wonderful city. It's a wonderful community. We have so much potential. There's a lot we can do to build better public transit, to bring more attractions to downtown Ottawa, to build on our arts and culture. We can do a lot of things to make Ottawa a wonderful and even more wonderful place to live and work.
0: And residents of this city are hoping that you can do that. Mark Mm -hmm. Sutcliffe, congratulations once again. Thank you. Appreciate you coming in for this.
2: My pleasure.